Uh, let's turn, let's go straight to the scripture here today. Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. We're going to start reading at verse 22. Reading verses 22 through 28. For many of you, this might be a very familiar passage of scripture. To some of you, it might be your first time looking at it. But uh, either way, I pray that... Uh, God will bless us to look at it and see what he's saying to each one of us. So let's read. Let's stand as we get ready to read the scripture and I'll start and you can join in and read through these verses with me. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and we consider it an awesome privilege to be in a place where we can hear your word. We pray, O oh God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you may apply your word to each one in this place. And we pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to talk uh, this morning or this afternoon for a few minutes on the subject the making of a new man, the making of a new man as we look at this account in the life of Jacob. But before we go into the text, I, I want to share a couple things and then we'll get into the text this morning. Um, has anyone here ever been really, really afraid? You've been in a place where you were like terrorized afraid. Raise your hand real high if you've been really, really afraid. I, I, I remember being seven years old it was August 1969 in Gulfport, Mississippi. Um, yeah, Gulfport, Mississippi. So how many people here from foreign countries are, were born out of the country? Okay, me too, me too. Praise God. Um, but anyway, it was in Gulfport, Mississippi. And uh, I remember turning on the news that day. I think it was August 17th. And I'd seen news reports, you know, I remember them as, as a kid and growing up in the era of the Vietnam War and, and seeing the horrors of war and all that was going on in the 60s, a turbulent, turbulent time in our nation's history. But I never saw anything like I saw on the news that day because barreling down on the coast of Mississippi and just about to make a direct hit on the city I lived in, Gulfport, Biloxi, uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast, was Hurricane Camille. Now, some of you have never heard of Hurricane Camille, but it is still, to this date, the most powerful hurricane that's ever hit the United States. Um, 
They measured the winds of Hurricane Camille while it was in the Gulf at over 230 miles an hour. It goes up to Category 5, but that's like a Category 6. Um, even when it was on land, the sustained wind speeds of the hurricane were over 190 miles an hour when it crashed into the Mississippi coast on that day. And so they knew this storm was not supposed to hit there, but it took a turn at the last, and it was going to be a direct hit. And I remember the men on the news just almost, I have a vivid memory of them in fear and in trembling and, and, and saying, leave, please leave, please get away. And most of the people who lived right along the coastal region left but it still ended up being the, now it's the second most deadly hurricane that ever hit the United States. The, the, the wind speed over 190 miles an hour, the, the storm surge they said would be 20 feet, it ended up being 27 feet. So it was almost like getting hit by a huge tornado along with having a tsunami come in as well. It was, a, it was a, an incredibly powerful, powerful storm. And I just remember the fear that gripped those men on the news. Fear. Jacob is in this uh, place of incredible fear as we come into the passage we're looking at today. And I just want to do one survey before we move on. How many of you now, raise your hands and be honest, even if you were in the last service, how many of you are fans of horror movies? I mean, movies that scare you out of your life. How many of you put your hand real high if you're big fans of horror movies? Okay, after service, we are going to have a prayer service specifically for you. And we are going to fill the baptismal pool with Crisco oil and dip you in there because you need a special anointing because you have a special issue. Most of us, and probably even you, don't really like to be that scared in real life. You can deal with it on a movie screen. But, but we run from fear. We run from difficult situations. And Jacob, right here, finds himself in a fearful position. Some of you remember the story of Jacob. He was born the youngest of twin boys. And as he was born, he was grabbing his older brother's heel. That's why they named him Jacob. The word literally means heel grabber. So he comes out of the womb grabbing his brother's heel and he lives his life. He lives up to his name. Heel grabber, liar, deceiver. He lives up to that name through his whole life. And so uh, Jacob, uh, 20 years ago, had swindled his brother and had tricked his father to get his older brother's deathbed blessing from his dad, from Isaac. And he pretended with the help of mom, who he was mom's favorite, he, he pretended to be his older brother Esau because the blessing was to go to the oldest son. So he put on his older brother's clothes, he pretended to be him, and he got that blessing. Now, when Esau heard about it, Esau was mad. And mama overheard Esau saying, when daddy dies, Jacob is the next one to go. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill that young boy, even though he was just 
minutes younger than him. But he said, I'm going to kill him. And Jacob was afraid. Mama heard it and said, now, now, son, you need to go get you a wife from a place way away from here. And he sent him up to uh, his uncle Laban, who lived hundreds of miles away in what would be modern-day Syria, Padan Aram it was called, but it's modern-day Syria, sent him way away, far away from his brother Esau because his brother Esau was big and bad and murderous and mad. But now God says, Jacob, it's time to go back to Canaan. And so he's on his way back, and earlier in this chapter, he sends out some emissaries before him to see what's up with Esau. And they say, wonderful news, Esau's coming. Okay, that's good to hear. He's coming with 400 men. They are not mummers. They're not strutting. They're not happy. They're not doing a jig. They're 400 men coming with Esau. And Jacob now is sorely afraid. One last thing before we get into this text. Jacob's life is defined by two things. If you read all of what Genesis says about the life of Jacob, you will see two key things. I'll talk about the first one right now. And that is that Jacob is consistently a deceiver. He lives according to his name. So he deceives his brother several times. He goes off into Padan Aram with his uncle Laban. And him and uncle Laban are both deceivers. As a matter of fact, they go into a 20-year pattern of mutual swindleization of one another. It's just a mess what goes on there. The worst swindle ever is this one. When Jacob gets there, he sees Rachel, who is Laban's son, and he loves her immediately. She is one fine Syrian lady. She's a good-looking young lady. And, and he falls in love with Rachel. And when he meets Laban, he says, I want to marry your daughter their relatives back in the day that was okay. You married relatives, not so good right now. But they, he, he says, yes, you can have my daughter. No problem. Uh, would love to do that. Um, you have to work for me for seven years. Daggone it, seven years. So, but the Bible says he loved her so much that the years passed by fast, and it seemed like just a few days. He was floating in love. Some of you have been there. I hope, I hope some of you married folks are still there. But he was just floating in love with this girl. And so after seven years, uh, uh, Jacob says, it's my time. I'm ready. Give her to me. He says, no problem. I'm going to give her to you. But first, we have to have a party. It's a wedding. So he throws this elaborate feast. Make sure Jacob gets a little wine before the feast to get ready for the feast. Make sure that during the feast, he gets a little bit more wine. Make sure that after the feast, he gets the rest of the wine. So by the time the feast is over, Jacob is stumbling drunk. And he puts Jacob's in his tent, and he turns out all the lights. He says, here's my daughter. You can have her. She's your bride. And one of the funniest but saddest and cruelest verses of Scripture is this. The Bible says, and when Jacob woke up in the morning... Behold, it was Leah. Leah was the older, 
and according to the Bible, uglier daughter. <laughs> that Jacob was not headed over heels in love with. And so Laban says, well, you know what? When, when Jake, Jacob's mad, he says, well, it's not our custom to give away the younger. We give away the oldest first. But he never told him that. So Jacob has to serve another seven years for Laban uh, to get uh, Rachel, who he loves. He gets her after a week, but he has to serve another seven years for that. And what's going on is a mutual swindleization between uh, Jacob and Laban all these years. So deception is one thing that marks his life. But now, here he is. God calls him back into the land of Canaan to meet his brother with the 400 men and a bad attitude. Esau's coming, and Jacob is afraid. He's overwhelmed by fear. And so he takes three drastic measures. Look with me at verse 9 for a minute. And we're just going to go through the first two very quickly. But the first thing is, Jacob prays like he's never prayed before. Have any of you been in a situation where you are scared, messed up, you know you're in a jam, and it does wonders for your prayer life? <laughs> Jacob prays like Jacob never prayed before look at this I just I want to read this prayer it's really not part of the message but it's such a rich prayer I believe one of the most beautiful prayers in scripture it says and Jacob said O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac O Lord who said to me return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant for with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. He starts out by reminding God and, and saying that you're the God of my fathers. And then he says, you, you're the one who told me return and that you would do me good. This is after he hears the news of Esau coming with the 400 men. He says, you're the one who said you'll do me good. So he reminds God of his promise. And then Jacob does something that I don't see him ever do before this in Scripture. Jacob gets low before God. Jacob gets humble before God. Jacob says, I am not worthy. He says, of the least of all the deeds, all the steadfast love, all the faithfulness that you've shown to me. God, I'm not worthy. And then he does something else. He gets raw and real with God. He says, and I'm going to paraphrase right now, I am scared to death. In verse 11, he says, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. He says, I am scared to death of Esau. God, I just got to tell you right now, I am scared. The best prayers we ever pray are the most honest prayers we ever pray. You don't have to dress it up with thou and thee and wherefore and whereof and all kinds of other stuff. You just need to let God know what's going on in your heart. And that's exactly what he does here. He gets emotionally vulnerable and honest and says, God, I'm scared. And I need your help. Only you can help me. And then at the end of the prayer, he says, verse 12, But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, 
which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So at the end of the prayer, when he makes his request, he says, God, I'm just going to repeat back to you what you promised to me. He's not basing his prayer for blessing upon something that he's made up in his head, but something that God has revealed in his word. That's a good prayer, y'all. So in a time of difficulty, he prays like he's never prayed before. The second thing he does, verses 13 through 21, we're not going to read those, is he makes provision for his brother Esau. He begins to get together emissaries to go out in five different droves to go out to meet Esau before he meets Esau and give him gifts. He gives him gifts of cattle and camels and goats and donkeys and sheep, and he gives away, if you Count it all up in those verses, 550 animals as a gift to appease his brother. He's scared. And he says, maybe if he gets all these and the servants go ahead and they say, your, Lord, your servant Jacob is behind us. By the time Jacob gets there, Esau will be all right. That's his hope. So he makes provision for Esau. But we're gonna, what we're going to look at today is this. He also prepares for God's presence. He prepares for God's presence. So, uh, three points here on the confrontation that happens. First of all is this. It starts in verse 22. Jacob made room, made room for solitude. Look at verse 22. The scripture says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Jacob makes room to be alone and for a place of solitude. Now, if you think this was easy for him, let's look at what it says. It said he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children. Plus, we know that he had hundreds of servants and thousands of animals, a whole camp that was moving. In fact, it says before this, he had become two camps. He was so numerous. There was so much stuff. But Jacob says, I know I need to be in a place where I'm alone. Some of you struggle with finding a time and a place to be alone with God. Some of you struggle with it. I would, I would put before you right now, Jacob would struggle a little bit more than you do. Who has 11 children in this place right now? Maybe somebody does, I don't know. But he had 11 kids. 10 boys. I grew up with two brothers. We were three boys. I do not know how my mom made it through. Because we were nuts, beating on each other, doing all kinds of crazy stuff all the time, breaking windows, stuff going on. He had, he had ten boys and one little girl, Dinah. I don't know how that girl made it through. But, but this was his household. He had two wives and then two of their servants who also had children for him. He had four women in the house, all wanting some Jacob. And according to the biblical text, all getting some Jacob. I got one woman in my house. I love her. I love my wife. Four women in the house. Eleven kids. 
hundreds of servants, thousands of animals. He says, I need to get away. I need to get alone. Maybe that drove him to get alone. I don't know. But, but the reality is we all need to find a place where we can get alone if we're going to have an encounter with God. C.S. Lewis said, we live in a world starved for solitude, silence, and private. And therefore, starved, of, starved for meditation and true friendship. Some of you got 3,000 friends virtually. Right? And, and many of you have a lot of great relationships and friendships. But, but what Lewis is getting at is to truly be a friend, to truly be able to minister to anyone on a deeper level, you need to spend some time away and alone and get along with God. I'm the community life pastor of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia. So I, I'm always telling people, get together with brothers and sisters. You need community. You need community. You need community. And we need that. But you will not have healthy community if we have people that don't know what it means to get alone and be with God. Amen. Your community will not be healthy. You need to have that. Not making consistent room for solitude in your life is a sure sign that you're too confident in yourself. You don't make room to be alone with God. And we have all, I won't call them excuses, reasons in the world. Jobs and work and school and stuff. We have all the reasons in the world and yet, the reality is, when I don't make time, when I don't make time, what I'm saying is, God, I can make it with you on the run. I, I, I don't really need that time with you. I can just kind of run through life and do my devotions while I'm driving or while I'm on the sub or somewhere else. I don't need to find a place to get away with you. It's an arrogant statement that we make with our lives when we don't spend time away with God. So Jacob spends that time alone secondly Jacob perseveres through pain look at verse 24 it says and Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day now we we know as we read the rest of this scripture that man is the angel of the Lord or God right so we we end up finding out who this man is that Jacob wrestles with. And the Bible says he wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So what we know, he begins wrestling with him sometime at night. So he may have wrestled with him four hours, six hours, eight hours. He wrestled with him all night long until the breaking of the day. Now, I don't know, some of you may have wrestled in your life. I, I saw Octavius in his place. I know he was a wrestler and I talked about this scripture some time ago here. But, but wrestling, when you wrestle, you wrestle three periods of two minutes each. I think in college they have an extra minute on one of those uh, uh, periods. So a total of six minutes or seven minutes. And if anyone has ever wrestled, you know that more than basketball, more than football, more than hockey, more than boxing, more than anything else, wrestling saps every little last bit of your strength out of your body. 
It takes it all away from you. And at the end of a wrestling match with someone who is at your level or above your level, you are drained. You're gone in six minutes or seven minutes. He wrestles six hours or seven hours. Not just with uh, Barney Fife. Some of you know who Barney Fife is. Or Pee Wee Herman. Or some... Uh, 98-pound weakling, but he's wrestling with a theophany. Has anyone ever wrestled with a theophany all night long? If you have, I need to pray for you too. But he wrestles with God clothed in a human suit all night long. Can you imagine how wasted he is by the end of the night? Jacob perseveres through this. And, and, And let's pick it up here, verse 25. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Now this is weird. The man is God and prevail means to conquer or have victory. Okay. So he saw that he did not have victory over him. He did not conquer him. So God evidently is not putting all his godness into this wrestling match. What he's doing, to say the least, what he's doing is allowing Jacob to spend all of his energy and strength and give up all of who he is so he has nothing left at the end of it. But Jacob perseveres. When he saw he did not prevail against Jacob, it says he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. That's painful, y'all. He just got his hip dislocated after he wrestled all night with his angel. Now, now think about that. He had a dislocation to his hip. What, why is he so afraid? Because his brother Esau is coming. What's the final defense against an enemy if Esau comes as an enemy? The final defense is run like the wind. And now here's Jacob. He's wrestled all night. He has no more strength left. And now his hip has been dislocated. Now he's going to limp for the rest of his life. He cannot anymore run from his brother. He perseveres. You know, sometimes God will touch you in the place that is, 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 is the place that you think is the one place he can't touch. Please don't touch me there. Please don't disable me in that place. That's the one place I'm confident. That's the one place where I know I I can gather my faculties and make this thing work. Don't touch me in my family. Don't touch me with my kids. Don't touch me in my intellect. Don't touch me in, in my material possessions. There are places for all of us that we've asked God, please don't touch that. Hands on anything else, please don't touch that. If there was one place for Jacob where he was saying please don't touch that don't touch my legs because I might have to run when God touches you in that place he's probably doing you the greatest favor that he ever can do you he's showing his love to you because he's saying you can't do this without me you can only do it with me and so he says in verse 26 after he put his hip out of joint Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
you know, I always used to think of Jacob because the, the description of him earlier in Genesis is that Jacob is kind of a mama's boy. Esau is the rugged, outdoorsman, hairy beast of a man who's looking for something to kill. And Jacob is hanging at home, hanging on mama's apron, saying, what do we do next, mommy? Teach me that recipe. I want to know that. Nothing wrong with men that can cook. I know some of y'all put your creations on Facebook. It's all good. But, but he's like the mama's boy. But he ain't no mama's boy anymore. He just wrestled with God all night long. God touches him, dislocates his hip. He's in incredible pain. God says, let me go. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. He perseveres through pain, trial, and difficulty. How in the world do you persevere through that? I don't know about you, but I know that I am adverse to pain. I don't like pain. I don't invite it. I don't say, hey, let's go get hurt today. That sounds good. For me, 2013 was, among other things, the year of the dentist. Probably because 2010, 2011, and 2012 weren't, but nevertheless, it ended up being the year of the dentist. I was introduced to my friend Root Canal. And I met some other friends along the way. Now, I, I love my dentist. been going to my dentist for many years. Um, missed for a few years, but the Lord knows all things. Uh, so, so 2013 ended, ended up being a year of many drillages. Much, much drilling went on in the year. But I, I, I like my dentist. I appreciate my dentist. But one of the things that she said to me several times even though I saw that I was about to get drilled, literally, was, you know what, I don't think we're going to need any Novocaine today. I don't think we're going to need to do anything. This, this is, it's, it's, you know, it's not very deep. And I said, excuse me. <laughs> yes, we do. We need Novocaine. Matter of fact, if you have some of that funny gas that puts me out, I need some of that. If your method is to use a brick to hit me in the back of the head, to knock me out for several days, I'm fine with that. If I can't feel my face for three to five days, I'm good with that. But please don't pick up a drill and say, we don't need any of this today. We need it today. I don't like pain. But the reality is, that as believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to encounter serious pain as we walk with God at different times. You cannot avoid it. It's coming. You'll go through it. The question is, what do you do when the pain in your life becomes too much for you to bear? And there's really only two things that you can do. The first is to run from God. You've done it. I've done it. We found different ways to run away from God. There's a lot of ways that we can do that. We can give up. We can deny the reality of the difficulty and the problem that we're going on, that's going on in our lives. Fake it till you make it. Don't work. We can live life for other comforts and distractions. We can build our lives around what makes us comfortable, what makes us feel good. We can do all of these things to, in effect, hide from God. Or 
we can take the other option. We can run to God. I believe that's exactly what Jacob is doing in this verse when he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now this is interesting because the one he says, I won't let you go until you bless me, is the one who has sapped all of his strength out of him and the one who has gravely injured him by dislocating his hip. In other words, the one he says, Only, I, I won't let you go until you bless me, you are the one who's been hurting me all night long. You're the one who's responsible for my injury. You're the one who's responsible for the fact that I have no energy left in my body. You're the one who controls all these circumstances in my life, and, let, and yet I'm at this terrible, painful place, but I have nowhere else to look. I won't let you go until you bless me. See, the question is, what, what, what keeps a person in, in that place with God what keeps you there the only thing that can grip God so tightly and not let go is a faith in the goodness of God's essential character even when the evidence of your circumstances screams otherwise See, it's not just I memorized these verses. I went, to, uh, I went to the gatherings on Sundays. I went to life group. I'm doing my devotions. All those things are good and necessary and wonderful. But at the heart of it all, pain and difficulty will, will show up in how you react to God. Do I believe that in spite of everything I see and in all that I feel and what's going on, that you are good? And you are for me. As Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? See, does your heart scream that truth? And if it doesn't, you, you, you need to ask God to reveal himself to you in that way. And he will. But he, he conf- he, Jacob holds on to God in the midst of his pain. And lastly, uh, in this section, Jacob confesses the awful truth of his sin look at verse 27 it seems like an innocuous verse and he said to him what is your name and he said jacob doesn't sound like a big deal does it you know what the name means we talked about it before heel grabber means liar it means deceiver there was one other time in the scripture we see that Jacob is going after a blessing. I talked about it earlier. He's going after the blessing of the firstborn from his father. And he, with conspiring with mom, he puts on Esau's clothes. Conspiring with mom because Esau was hairy and Jacob was smooth. He puts some, some rough, some hairy stuff on his face, some rough stuff on the back of his neck uh, so that he seems more like Uh, Esau, his dad, cannot see anymore, but he can smell and he can hear. And Jacob walks into the room for the blessing of his father. He says, I have some game for you. I've killed this. I've prepared it the way you like it. And uh, his father, Isaac, says, are you really my son Esau? He says, yes, I am. He lies about his identity. He lies about his name. And he says, you The smell 
is the smell of Esau, but the voice is the voice of Jacob. He says, come close to me. Are you really my son Esau? And he said, yes, I'm Esau. And his father feels the back of his neck, and it's, it's rough and hard, and his face is hairy, and he's convinced that indeed it is Esau, and so he blesses him. He gives him the blessing of the firstborn, even though he's not the firstborn. Jacob seeks the blessing and lies about his identity. He lies about who he is. But in this situation, Jacob is asked, what is your name? And he says, I am heel grabber. I am liar. I've lived a life of deceit. I'm duplicitous in every way. I'm a manipulator. I'm self-centered. When he is saying, my name is Jacob, he's admitting to his sin. He's admitting to his identity as one who's built his life around himself without regard to others or to God. And he admits that before God. So Jacob confesses the awful truth of his sin. You know, we'll never progress in our walk with God beyond our ability to honestly talk about the depth of our sin. As long as we dress it up and make it smell good, you'll never enter into a depth of relationship with God that He, he wants for you. That he, Jesus died for that relationship where you can honestly say in, in, in the worst part of your life, because the reality is we are all Jacobish. We're all Jacobs. In so many ways, the, the, the reality of who Jacob is, building a life that caters to himself without necessarily caring about the effect on others or God, that is what we naturally do apart from the, 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 the work of God and His Holy Spirit in our lives. That's where we go, it's what we do. But Jacob comes clean with God. He calls him to come clean. Jacob makes room in his life for solitude. He perseveres through pain and he confesses the truth of his sin. So what happens with all of that? Two things. First of all, Jacob receives a new identity. Look at verse 27 and 28 again. He said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Gives him a new name. Israel does not mean heel grabber or deceiver. Israel means he who strives with God. One commentator uh, translated it this way, God's fighter. One who fights for God. That's who Jacob is now. He gets a new name, a new identity, a new foundation, a, a brand new start. Because he comes clean before God, he meets with God, he perseveres with God, and he's given this beautiful new name. Now no longer will you be called Jacob, but now you'll be called Israel. So he's given this incredible blessing. You know, one interesting thing about Jacob being renamed, uh, like Abram was renamed Abraham, Sarah, 
Sarai was renamed Sarah. After Abram and Sarai are renamed, every other reference you see to, of them in the rest of the Bible is by their new name. But with Jacob, it's not so. It goes back and forth. Sometimes he's referred to as Jacob. Sometimes he's referred to as Israel. It's interesting. In fact, there's another renaming of Jacob again in, in chapter 35. God says again, no longer Jacob, but now Israel. But it goes back and forth in the scriptures. Jacob inherits this new name, is given this blessing by God, this new name, and yet he's entirely inconsistent in walking it out. He's not consistent with it. From him come the 12 tribes of Israel. Now the nation is named Israel. Occasionally you'll see in the Psalms and other places that Israel as a nation will also be called Jacob because they act very Jacobly at times. But there is a culmination uh, of of Jacob becoming Israel that is never called Jacob again, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the one who struggles with God and wins. He struggles for us in order that we might win. And in the New Testament, the church by Paul in Galatians is called the Israel of God. We are the Israel of God. God changes the name of those who believe in Him and submit their lives to the King. No longer will you be called Jacob, but now you'll be called Israel. There's one other thing that happens out of uh, this situation, and that is, let's look at verse 30. Verse 30 says, And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I've seen the face, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Verse 31, the sun rose up, rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. Jacob's confident walk becomes a dependent limp. Jacob strutting, Jacob proud, Jacob able to manipulate his way out of difficult circumstances with his wits and guile, Jacob thinking he may even be able to run from his brother. Now Jacob will limp for the rest of his life he will no longer be that sure and self-confident one who's confident in his ability, but he will have to rely on the grace and the power of God for the rest of his life. Never the same. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you will not despise. Psalm 147.3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. God is near to the brokenhearted. God comes close to those who have a broken spirit.
we celebrate in our culture and even in our churches pride and arrogance. The proudest, the most arrogant, the one whose ability seems to be above everyone else's, that's who we want. That's who we celebrate. God says no. God says it is the lowly. It is those who have been broken in spirit. It is those who will not allow themselves to rely on themselves, but who will limp relying on me. To know God deeply is to walk with a limp. I'll just say this as I'm ready to close. Even in the church, very often, we can see what's celebrated as great is proud and arrogant. Pride and arrogance get celebrated in our church culture in America, not just in our worldly culture. God is looking for servants who understand their vulnerability, who understand their weakness, and who desperately say, God, if you don't show up in my life today, I am helpless, I am hopeless, I have no other hope. I need you, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. The song, as I close, a poem, it was written um, about 150 years ago, Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Most of you know the end of it. You've heard it. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm going to read one verse from that poem. And then a lovely Christian woman some years later rewrote the poem with a Christian uh, theme. But Henley says, out of the night that covers me, black as the night from pole to pole. I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Day says these words, and she names her poem Conquered. Invictus means unconquered. She says, out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ the conqueror of my soul. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for how you show us weak and pitiable characters in the Bible, who we now call the patriarchs, the great men of our faith. You don't hide their inconsistencies. You don't hide their sin issues. You don't hide the messiness of it all. But you show us them as they truly are. And yet, Lord, as we see that, we also see who you are. The overwhelming reality of Jacob's life was that he was a deceiver. The other overwhelming reality we see, O oh God, is that you were always right there with him. And from that, O oh God, we gain hope. 
I pray that your people would gain hope today to know with whatever sins and issues that may overwhelm them, whatever circumstances may be seem to be too much for them. Oh God, that Christ, the perfect one, has come to give his life, to give your life to us who don't deserve it. May we pray like Jacob prayed. We are unworthy of all the faithfulness, of all your goodness and mercy that you've shown us. But, oh God, may we also say with Jacob, I'm going to hold on. I won't let you go, oh God, because you're the only one that has what I need. So, Lord, be with your people today. And I pray, oh God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, they won't leave this place the same way that they came. But they'll give their hearts and lives to you. So, Lord, minister us by your power and by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.